right, so that is a funky bass line that's uh, opening the program today. We've got How to Pakistan as usual. I have Mursharaf Zaidi with me. And our last episode, of course, was on the red left. Today, we're going all out capitalist on everyone. So, Mursharaf, please. Well, Assalamu alaikum, Fasi. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum to all the viewers as well. I, uh, I keep saying viewers. Yes. Listeners. Listeners. Um, Thanks for joining us once again for another episode of How to Pakistan. We, uh, we thought we'd follow up with Ahmad, who was <coughs> such a great guest, uh, and we really enjoyed having him on, with uh, someone who... And now that the Red Scare has come all over Pakistan <laughs> to bring it down. Yeah, yeah, we want to calm everybody down by some soothing, with, with the smooth sounds yes. of capitalist excess. Excess, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, but not really in the sense that, you know... Um, our guest today was a big-time capitalist, and now he's he's busy trying to work the economy, trying to make, uh, trying to create jobs, and get the government to seem like it's at least half serious about all its promises. Uh, we have with us uh, none other than the minister for investment, the chairman of the board of investment. Uh, and somebody that I've begun to think of as a as a very good friend, principally because I really, you rarely come across politicians who have as candid a conversational style as the Honorable Mifta Ismail. Welcome to the show, Mifta. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Vasil. Thank you, Musharraf. So I think I think one of the things that I find really interesting about Mifta is that immediately uh, the fact that you're a PhD from Wharton, you're heading the Board of Investment, and for some reason it gives me a bit of a odd satisfaction to know that somebody who's actually qualified for the post is at the post. So is it true you and Nawashiri first met at Jangir Balti, and you know, that's where your friendship began? Jangir what? Balti. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I actually, first, I first met the Prime Minister at his residence in Drivand. Okay. How so, many years? How many years ago? Was about it? five, six years ago. Six years. Ago. I mean, I guess what Fassi is trying to ask with with the, with the, with the Jangir Balti references <laughs> is uh, one. I think maybe he's trying to make an observation about your eating habits, which I don't. No, not fair, his. He's, the, pretty, it, he's, pretty, he's, he's he's reasonably he, trim. He's trim. Yeah. So <laughs> and I'm no one to make anyone's habits. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think the, the 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 larger point is how does like a highly educated, highly accomplished PhD. Uh, in public finance, end up working for the Sharifs. Yeah, how does this come together? Well, I actually find Nawaz Sharif to be a very, very charming man, very gracious man. And uh, the first time I had gone to meet with uh, Shabazz Sharif, uh, I had set up a factory in Lahore, and uh, I had a lot of interaction with the Punjab Board of Investment, and they really helped us out. And I'd gone to see Shabazz Sharif. Was, was this when Saad, when Saad, Saad, was, was, Saad yeah. was the chairman? And I'd gone to meet with the chief minister, and uh, you know we got talking, and you know we were talking about how PMLN could make inroads in Karachi. He had come and done a road show in Karachi, and he was very impressive, Shabash Sharif, with his off-the-cuff remarks. And we talked about energy and all that. And that very day, they were having a energy policy meeting in the uh, Nawaz Sharif's residence. Then he was not the prime minister then, and uh, Shabash Sharif have invited me to you know go along. And I did, and I sat with the meeting, and then I had a 
one-on-one -on -one chat with Mia Saab for a few minutes. And, he, and after that, he ca every time he came to Karachi, I went to go to see him. And then I organized a few, uh, you know, lunches and dinners for him. And uh, I find both brothers to be extremely knowledgeable. Uh, Mia Saab is just very charming and gracious. And uh, it's almost like a magnet, people's magnet. You know, I mean, seriously, one-on-one, -on -one, I think there is nobody better than Nawaz Sharif to make you comfortable, to make you at ease. And that's why when he goes on foreign tours and, and all these foreign leaders who like him so much, uh, it's because of the, the charm that he has and the ease with which he puts people in. There's a sincerity that shows, uh, and that comes through. See, right away, I'm a little bit uncomfortable because the whole theory about the prime minister, of course, is that you have to be related to him for, for him to listen to you yeah. and to be close to him. And, and there is some proof of that as well. I mean, there are relatives of the president. Anecdotal. Uh, well, not just, I mean, there's a, there's but a you lot know, of... Empire, you, know the, you know the plural of anecdote is not data, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's you know, I was about to say anecdotal, <coughs> empirical, overwhelming evidence. Yeah. No, yeah. but this kind of... Yeah. Th this kind of pushes up against that, right? And I agree. Of, yeah. You know, says, here's a, here's a person who... You were the CEO of a big uh, food conglomerate. Is that... I was a CEO of a confectionery company, yes. Okay. So basically, confectionery, I, I, I don't know what that means. Well, we, in my you prior... You made cookies and candies. Cookies, candies, potato chips, and things okay, like that. Okay, fantastic. And so you were doing that, and you had a PhD, uh, and so obviously you've read a few books, and you're sort of reasonable human being with some degree of success corporately. Were you a good CEO? Did the company grow under you? The company has, has grown tremendously. But it's actually grown even faster since I've left. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a family member that's taken over. I'm, I'm guessing. It's a family business, but it's now reached a stage. We have uh, sales of, you know, considerable sales. You know, about we're a public limited company. This year we should close at about 16, 17 billion rupees of sales. Uh, that's a lot of candy. That's a lot of candy, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and, and we've other businesses as well. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, professionals who actually manage the business. Right. Yes. So you're this reasonably, not reasonably, incredibly highly educated person with a track record of success in the private sector. So not like some other people who've spent their careers working for donors and writing reports and stuff. Yeah, <coughs> I agree. <coughs> <laughs> right? And, and then you go and you meet the Sharifs and suddenly, I mean, you're saying five or six years ago, that means you guys are not like deep in terms of personal relationship or business relations or whatever. So you would be an example of the outlier because everybody else is, you have to have been with them for like 20 years and like, you know, the, the, There are them. a lot of people who've known the, you know, the brothers for a long time, but there are also people, you know, Mohammed Zubair, the privatization minister actually, has known the prime minister even for a shorter period than I have. There are lots of other, you know, you focus on, 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 on you know, some, some people who've gone back a long time, but lots of people have not gone back a long time. But there are people, obviously, who have gone back a long time. Uh, it just so happened that, you know, after I met with the Prime Minister a few times and, 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 and we, you know, we attended some business lunches and, and, and et cetera in Karachi, then he also asked me to join the manifesto committee. Right. And I actually wrote the energy part of the manifesto committee along with uh, Shahid Abbasi. Um, and, and then... In the meantime, uh, uh, the Chief Minister, uh, Shabazz Sharif Saab, actually asked me to head the Punjab Board of Investment, which was a very unusual decision given that I was from Karachi. Right. Uh, but <clears throat> he... So the Genyotis, sort of the Genyotis would have loved that. 
I think uh, I was well received by <laughs> the entire well, business by community. everybody. That's fantastic. And uh, so you know, and, and, and enjoyed doing this. So, so Shabash was my first, I guess, mentor and teacher in the government. Uh, and he's an incredibly hardworking person. I don't work quite as hard as he does, uh, but it certainly. Does inspiring. anybody does anybody work as hard <coughs> as Shabash Sharif does? Uh, a pe maybe people much younger than him could sustain it for some time, but a man of his age, the work, the way, he, the number of hours he puts in is incredible. It's not human. It's it's supposed to be. But he sleeps a very few hours. I mean, yeah, I, I've exactly. been told that he doesn't sleep so long. So much yeah, that's that's what I've heard as well. Um, so just a question. So when you were doing your PhD, did you actually think you'd be going into business, or did you have some? <coughs> you know, academic ambitions at that point in time? No, no, I had primarily academic intentions, but my, my, my PhD, although it's in public policy, it's in public finance and political economy, was from the Department of Public Policy and Management. And if you look at even the admissions essays I wrote, I talked about wanting to join government service or, 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 or you know, politics at some point. Right. Uh, so I always had this at the back of my mind. When I was doing my PhD, I was primarily being prepared as an academic. And indeed, actually, that uh, when I finished my job, PhD, I was supposed to teach uh, business government courses in, in Wharton that very next semester, and then go on the job market and look for you know jobs there. But uh, my family had just started this you know candy business, and I was needed here. And, and, and I'd lived in America for ten years, and my mom and the family really wanted me back. So then I came back. Um, Are you the eldest sibling? The youngest, actually. The youngest. Okay. Uh, but. Uh, I think, I mean, I was sort of needed at that point to be in Pakistan, but I couldn't really settle. I went back to the U.S. and worked for the IMF as an economist uh, for about a year. Then I came back to Pakistan, and since then I've never looked back. In, in Pakistan, I would teach uh, at the IBA uh, one course a year uh, on some either game theory or comparative strategy or things like that. Right. Uh, just to keep myself, uh, you know, uh, in touch with the academia. Uh, How do you keep in touch now? Have you read Piketty's <coughs> book? Now I actually have absolutely uh, nothing to do with academia. But I was thinking, because I keep commuting between Islamabad and Karachi, but I was thinking of actually teaching a course here as well. Okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> some microeconomics. Have you read course. Piketty's book? I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole thing. Okay, I don't know it's anyone who's. Read. Yeah, I don't it's know anyone who's read. read the whole thing. No, no, no. Yeah, the, yeah. the whole thing. Though, but have you had a chance to go through the Getty? I've, I've, I've looked at a few pages of it, but but I've not gone through all of this. Uh, but then I'm actually a very uh, libertarian sort of a right wing, old school Chicago school. No. <laughs> so this is literally the perfect sort of setup. The perfect for setup. Folks, because you know we spoke to Ahmad Rashid from the Amar Avami Workers Party yesterday mm -hmm. um, and, and put up that episode uh, just this morning. And, and we were just saying, actually, we were being kind of facetious that this is kind of the counterbalance. But you really are like hardcore Chicago. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's disappointing because that. I've liked huh? you. Hayek and all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so, so Mises, just a question. Ludwig von Mises yeah. and Hayek. And yeah. Hayek. So, so just a question on that. I mean, um, so like over your lifetime as you've now also observed politics and government and all that. I've often wondered about, you know, sort of libertarian economics and all <coughs> that. Is it, is it partly the sort of modeling simplicity of it that, you know, everything will just fall in place and all will be hunky-dory? Uh, <laughs> what is it that, you know, well, a Beatles, okay. yeah. 
there is simplicity and there is beauty in the simplicity. And, 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 and it's not because of modeling convenience that you know you can, you know, you can set up a good <laughs> model. But, but, but just think about how badly the government works in most developing countries and in most countries, period. And, and if you can shrink the size of the government and let people choose the, their own lifestyle, their own ways, uh, why not just do this? That doesn't mean that we are not, I mean, if just because you believe in, you know, libertarian sort of economics does not mean that you don't believe in social justice. Uh, you know, I, I do think that the government has a responsibility to ensure that the poorest of the poor uh, are well taken care of. There is this theory by John Rawls about being beyond the veil of ignorance that before you were born, you don't know whether you would be born on the right side of the track or the, you know, the wrong side of the track. Shermina both you know, I talked about this a couple of days back. And, and so if I, am, if I don't know whether I would be a Dobi's son or a Seth's son, then I want to make sure that you know, Dobi's son also has a good chance of, uh, of, 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 of getting somewhere you know, in life. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, people should be able to make their own economic decisions and, and, and government should keep its interference in the economy to the minimum possible level, it intervention in the economy to the minimum possible level. Yes, there are market failures where the government should step in, but there are also governmental failures where the government should be very wary of stepping in. So how do you, how do you uh, reconcile, say, you know, the <coughs> great degree of subsidies that you know, our government has in place? And it's been there since 2008, uh, since the crisis. Things like that would sort of rub against this sort of ethos you have. Okay, so, so, so okay, look, let's look at subsidies. What sort of subsidies? I mean, uh, somebody like me would actually believe in cash subsidies, that give people cash if they're very, very poor people. For instance, you know, take uh, BISP, Benazir Income yeah. Support Program. I mean, I, I mean, you know, there are people who are abjectly poor, and you really should just give them money. And, and I would not want to give them particular, you know, food or this and that. I'm okay with giving them money, and then they can choose whatever the, you know, wherever they want to spend their money on. And, and if you have such high magnitude of poverty, yes, you should have some sort of institutional mechanism in place to sort of, you know, help them out. Absolutely, I have nothing against subsidies. But I, what I'm against is government interve intervention in the economy, you know, when you require a lot of licenses. Just take, for example, zoning laws, that there are so many zoning laws, so difficult, such difficult zoning laws, uh, where you can't build, you know, four floors, you can build two floors, and, you know, you have to ask the government for everything. It's a, like a nanny state. And why must we ask the government for, like, how many floors do we want to build? Or how? The government should have rules rather than discretion that, okay, if you want to have 25 apartments in a, you know, in a land and build enough uh, basements and, and make sure that there is enough parking so you don't overcrowd the streets. But, but let people decide on their own sure. uh, for their so own. I, I just want to add, like, almost a, a question um, sort of related to, uh, you know, sort of your working philosophy in relation to the Board of Investment, and I've, I've seen that special economic zones have a, a significant uh, focus uh, for the Board of Investment. But in some ways, is it not that, you know, would you be more comfortable that you actually just simplified the rules of business across the country as opposed to having a special economic zone? Absolutely. That's ideally that's the case that you really want to have the whole of Pakistan should be in a special economic zone. And when you give, when you choose areas or zones or industries, you can often choose wrong. Uh, the government of Pakistan does not know what is going to be, the, uh, you know, what is going, what industries are going to be sunrise industries in the next five years, ten years, fifteen years. What would be, what would be successful technologies? And for instance, I will give you an example: the automobile sector. We have a lot of protection. We give a lot of protection to existing car manufacturers. Uh, 
and we've never really figured out how much does it cost our consumers to ensure that some cars are being assembled and produced in Pakistan. That yes, we may have created 100,000 jobs in the automobile sector in Pakistan, but those 100,000 jobs come at a very heavy price to the consumers. Uh, country, a country like New Zealand, for instance, said, fine, we don't have an indigenous car industry, that's okay. You know, we'll import cars. Uh, but we, prote we protect a lot of industry. And not just automobile is just an example, but mm. every industry in Pakistan is protected. And, 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 and our consumers then end up paying a lot. And our custom, for instance, tariffs are very high in, in trying to protect industry, whether they're plastic industries, whether they're confectionery industry, for mm. instance. I'll give you an example from confectionery that now if you import chocolates in Pakistan, that's I think 30-35% you know, custom tariffs on this. Mm. Uh, so you're basically giving Miftah Ismail and, and others who make confectionery in Pakistan a very you know, easy market, an uncompetitive market, and you're just making me richer. Uh, and, and you're making the consumers in Pakistan worse off. So an, an economist like me would think that you know, we should reduce these custom tariffs and let Miftah Ismail and you know, my company and other companies in Pakistan compete with the rest he of the world. So he is Chicago school, okay? No, he, he is he yes. Chicago school. <laughs> that raises, that raises a, a bunch of questions... Uh, so, you're right. We shouldn't be subsidizing rich people. But the reason that these subsidies exist, and this is kind of a continuation of the discussion we were having yesterday, yeah. and it's the same challenge that I posed to somebody who's left-leaning, I, I pose it to you as well. The reason we have those subsidies is not some ideological battle that was waged at some point in time and somebody decided, you know what, we're going to be the pro-subsidy sort of nanny state. The reason is that rich people enjoy the company of other rich people and when they get together they try and see how they can help each other out because they enjoy each other's company and that helping of each other out is at the cost of what we're calling the consumer but which is oftentimes in this country poor people because the principal the, the largest constituency in this country <coughs> is poor people so actually sort of bad public policy is designed to enable the furthering richness of rich people and the deterioration of any hope that poor people will have of catching up. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a conspiracy here, to be very honest with you. What happens is, and, 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 and uh, so uh, let's start with a tax break. Suppose you give a tax break to middle-income people. Now, rich people, because they're richer, will always be able to buy into that tax break. Okay, so they buy into this tax break. Or if you give a subsidy, we talk about this income support program and the government of Pakistan has raised it to 100 billion rupees, you know, cash transfers almost, which is remarkable. But the best thing is that they're only giving 18,000 rupees per person, okay? But if you look at the subsidy that rich people in Pakistan get every year, it, you know, th that subsidy is much bigger than the 100 billion rupees given to uh, sure. the income support program. Whether it's the subsidy for power sector, you can run an AC, but, you know, first few hundred units are actually subsidized by the government of Pakistan. Whether it's the gas sector in Pakistan, LPG gas, which is used most, mostly by the poor people, is two, three times per BTU more expensive than the gas that comes in your pipeline. Uh, and what happens is that... Firewood is actually even more, more expensive. expensive yes. And what happens is the regulatory agencies have, tenden, have a tendency of being captured by... By rich people. By, by rich people or by the industries that they are regulating. Right. Uh, so, and, and that's not just a Pakistan-only phenomenon. That's a global phenomenon. That's a glob go global phenomenon. So how do we break that down? It, that you shrink the size of the government. When you know that something you will do will end up doing exactly the opposite of what you want to do, why not just not do it? 
Or, or, or we could just get government to do what it's supposed to be doing. But no, but this is how the process works. I mean, there's a difference between a normative approach and a positive approach. And yes, you can have a normative approach. This is how the government is doing. But if you cross the road... Wait, just for listeners' benefit, because now we're getting PhDs, <coughs> right? So a normative approach is an approach in which we privilege the way things should be. Yes. And a positive approach is an approach in which... The way things are. Or okay. way things are going to be. So what, one is Actually, people who dream about the world the way that it should be. That's kind of the normative approach. And people who are trying to deal with reality as it exists. As is it exists right now. One is what we want. One is what, what is. What is. Sure. What yeah. is. What so, is. So break it down. As in how to, what is. Right. <laughs> so and I guess you're saying that you're the realist who's saying, you know what, don't worry about the way things should be. The way things are is that government gets captured. And the way to solve that is to reduce Eliminate government essentially. I not mean, not eliminate government, but not I mean, but to think of real life consequences of economic policies. That you come up with a NEPRA or you come up with OGRA and you think about in the last twenty, fifteen years that you OGRA has come. Has OGRA really helped Pakistani you know petroleum no. consumers? Has NEPRA really helped? But but why is, why is so why are OGRA and NEPRA not helping? So I have a theory. Let me propose that to you and okay. you know more about this because you're right up there. I'm just sort of down here looking at the stars trying to figure things out <laughs> and I'm thinking when we look at the people that work at the top levels of Nepra and Ogra they happen to be people who are either batchmates or related to in some way batchmates of people who have served as PS to the Prime Minister or Secretary Finance or Secretary Oil and Gas i.e. that there's a what we in Urdu call Mili Bhagat of very highly placed grade 21 and grade 22 officers and their retired seniors who basically use these positions as a as a revolving door and they keep coming in and out and so the system is entirely captured by people who didn't know how to do their jobs when they were bps 19 officers didn't know how to do them at 20 didn't know how to do them at 21 became indispensable at 22 and now occupy the system as retired senior citizens of this country on a pen on the best pension plan in the world which is as heads of these <coughs> kinds of organizations. So the problem is not an ideological, structural problem. The problem is that when the prime minister appoints somebody who's going to help him discern between who should be appointed to what agency, that that appointment in and of itself needs to be a better quality appointment. And if you have that, then you'll have people who are professionals in the jobs that they're supposed there, to be. And these regulatory agencies will start working better. But there is also, I mean, one premise on which it's different from this, which is for these particular organizations is that the price setting function from the government is where the problem occurs, which is that you know, you've got this price setting function and subsequently you've got a subsidy function as well. And this whole thing about uh, things like uh, circular debt is just simply playing catch up because of a price function that the government exercised. Okay. So, so yes. I, I, I totally disagree with Musharraf's theory. Okay. okay. <laughs> and I, I don't think there is either a Mali, Mali Bhagat. Chaddi, Badi, Panna. Whatever. Yes. <laughs> or, 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 or conspiracy. I think this is the way things are. It, 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 okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a ridiculously simple example, but then we'll work you know, our way to, to something more substantive. So, you know, it, it takes a lot of technology to make a TV or a computer or whatever. But if you go in the market, there's never a shortage of TV. There's never a shortage of computers because they're privately provided. There's always a computer. If you want to buy a Mac or whatever, you know, you can go out in the market and buy it. But when you want to buy electricity, there's a shortage. But that's because the government is providing it. So you have NEPRA, and you know, because of NEPRA, or not because of NEPRA, perhaps in spite of NEPRA, you still have circular debt. You still have severe shortage of electricity in Pakistan. 
and you have a lot of instructional issues and even you know today government and NEPRA are going head to head. I'm not saying NEPRA is wrong. I'm just saying that if, for instance, electricity in Pakistan were privately provided, we wouldn't have this problem. Now, electricity is a is sort of a what is called a privately like the way the IPPs provided it. No, 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 no. IPPs are essentially government vendors. So that's 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 the worst of both worlds, actually. To be very honest with you, in the public domain, let me just—I mean, I just—I see the point that and I see where you're going, and we can go back there if, if you'd like. But in the public domain, when when you make the argument that you made, the counter argument is what I made, and it seems to have some salience in the sense that people buy this—that when somebody says there should be private provision of thing X, somebody comes up with an example of something that isn't exactly thing X, but a proxy for it. The IPPs are a proxy in the public discourse for privately provided electricity, and it's a disaster. Just to add one thing on what Musharraf was saying earlier, is that there is this one thing where the existing provision which goes through sort of government structures, when you have a proposal as the one you do, which is let the private sector take care of it, then this group of people who are all involved or you know sort of uh, related to one another, they have a very good reason to make sure that Let's they call are them what they are, the rich elite. The rich elite, bureaucrats or whatever, uh, yeah, to prevent this from happening. But sorry, you were okay. saying. So no, IPPs, <coughs> actually, IPPs to the extent that they generate electricity, they generate it much cheaper than the government's own generation companies and because they're more efficient and there is more accountability there. So, so there is no doubt, actually even today, IPPs produce the bulk of uh, thermal power produced in Pakistan. My idea was that even the distribution companies should be broken down in smaller pieces and they should be sold to the private sector. There should be a wholesale market. So each IPP should not get a government guarantee to buy it, like we give them a 17% dollar-based return, and oftentimes they get more than 30% return. The IPPs are selling power to us quite dearly. My idea would be that the IPPs would then, in a wholesale market, sell to many distribution companies in Pakistan. Let's say 25, 30 distribution companies in Pakistan. So there are, let's say, multiple IPPs. There are 25, 30 distribution companies in Pakistan. They buy and sell electricity in a wholesale market, in a stock market sort of well. And, and, and finally, you need a regulator. You need a regulator to regulate the final price to the consumer because it's a decreasing cost industry and obviously there's a monopoly element to it and, and, and you don't want the electricity utility charging you 25, 30 rupees when the real cost is much less. So you need a regulator at the last point, at the consumer I point. Okay, so here's the problem with everything. Well, I'll give you, before I give you the problem, I'll give you what I like about it. I like everything about what you just said. Mm. Even though ideologically, I'm really, really, very, very, very suspicious of Chicago School Economics and what it really means. But I trust you. So I'm saying, if you're saying it, maybe, maybe it's coming from a good place. So buy it on the ideology, buy the sensibility of it. Then the question, I guess, becomes for me, one, why aren't we there yet? And to what extent is this government, the government that you represent in many ways, uh, how married is this government to the way that you want to do things? And two, we still haven't solved the regulator problem because even you admit that you ultimately need a regulator at the end of the day. And yes. what I said is that the way the regulator is run, the way that you make appointments for the regulator, the whole regime of how you appoint people is actually broken and, and decayed. And you know this better than I do, and we don't need to get into names or specific positions, but there is a problem in terms of where we find talent to regulate 
various sectors of this economy and this society. See, I don't want to personalize this. I mean, you, so you had uh, General Musharraf, uh, then the People's Party government, and then our government, you know, appoint regulators at different agencies, NACRAR, OGRA, PEPRA, whatever. And they've been equally bad throughout. And, and they've been equally good or bad throughout. They're, they're, you know, and, and, and so, I mean, you know, you would think that it's, it, by random co coincidence, you would actually appoint one very qualified individual. But it's, so it's not, I think all of them were qualified. I just think that, that the, the nature of the beast is such. The regulatory agency's nature is not very, I mean, and, and, and the, the government and regulatory agencies are each other's throat, a very adversarial relationship. But the nature of the beast is such that, you know, you, good cause, outcomes are not necessarily uh, mandated. I think that, yes, there's nothing wrong with regulation when you absolutely need it, and, and at final consumer level you need a regulation, but otherwise you should just let competition take place. I don't really have a I, Chicago school ideology. I just believe in efficiency. If you can do something cheaper, why would you spend more money? So uh, here's a question to this. Is like, so one of the potentials where we have these distribution companies, and like you said, I agree, I think they should be privatized because there's a lot of line losses where the system is clogged up Absolutely. because of this pr primarily. Absolutely. So <coughs> one, one, what's preventing that from happening? I mean, even the accumulated debt could be sold off to collectors. There's a yes, potential. Yes, yes. There's a potential for recovery as, as well. As well as recovery could be outsourced yes. to. So to I'm just wondering, what's the holdup then? Well, okay, and, and this is also ties up to your question about why 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 aren't we there where where I think we should be? Uh, so Muslim League is one political entity. It has you know, a plurality of support in Pakistan, but there are other players, People's Party, PTI, media, and, and, and we have to take everybody along. You know, the stakeholders within that agency, uh, let's say if you're talking about FESCO, the employees of FESCO and all that, we have to take everybody along. You know the ruckus that happened with the PIA privatization or, or you know, private sector involvement in the public-private partnership. Uh, Nawaz Sharif does not want to force anything uh, down the throats of the Pakistani people. I think he's somebody who wants to create a consensus towards these policies. And I think it's slowly and slowly we will get there. We, I, think, I think that we want to privatize uh, distribution companies. Uh, K-Electric has been privatized, but not with stellar results. I think that, yes, privatization was the right thing, but there were some mistakes made during the privatization process. I think we'll have to address those issues. And I personally think, although that's not happening, but I personally think that those should be that these companies should be broken down in smaller companies. So at, at some point, you know, and, and, and those smaller companies should be competing at the margins. You know, in some neighborhoods they would be competing, and so that would also help price discovery. Uh, and price we can also have price room for is, price discovery is when two firms are in competition for a customer's business, and in that process, discover lower levels of prices. Yes. And, and so you find out exactly what their cost were because they at what point are they willing to supply or not. So if, for instance, you know, take a neighborhood like F, you know, this this where we're sitting right now in Islamabad, in this neighborhood, and if there were two two utilities supplying electricity there, it, you know, the very very margin, and if both were willing to supply at a very low cost, then I think the regulators would understand what is the marginal cost 
of supplying the next unit. Aren't of there some last mile implications for that? Or there, there, there are, but I mean, you know, there are last mile implications. I and mean, of course, you know, it, if, if there is one company already in this neighborhood and the other company has to bring a, you know, copper from a different area, that would yeah. be very expensive. But if you have smaller companies and there are some neighboring villages where e either both of them could where compete. the transformers, yeah, if they're adjacent to each other and a, and, and, a, and a street could get wired with one or the other. other. So, right. so we would have some sort of price discovery. I mean, just, just you know, just, but in any case, I think that the smaller these units are the less uh, they will be able to have power over the government. For instance, I mean, you know, okay. I, I'll give you an example. Let me just, let me just say the Karachi Electric Supply Corporation, K Electric, supplies electricity to Karachi. They owe Swiss Southern Gas Company, the company I uh, chair, about 58 billion rupees. That's a serious chunk of money, right? Now, we still cannot not give them gas. Now, they're actually, since we, I've become chairman and since our government has come, we actually make sure that they pay the current bills and a little bit more from the, uh, from the previous bills. But if they don't pay us, we still have to pay them, give them gas. Otherwise, the whole of the city of Karachi will have no uh, electricity. We can't afford that. So that company has a lot of power over other government agencies because it can sort of hold hostage if you This is the problem of the monopsony. Yes. So, so, so the smaller these areas are, you know, then you know, the, 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 the less troublesome these companies would be. Look, so uh, I, I just want to ask one thing, which is like, you know, I've also <coughs> wondered in terms of the PMLN, which, was, which has been seen as pro-business and in the 90s, we could track it really well. But now, I mean, first it came into a situation where it had to do stabilization, where in some ways the achievement was, uh, you know, making sure there was uh, currency, less fluctuation in it, and making promises on energy, which weren't really met. But, uh, and now, you know, this huge bilateral deal between uh, China and Pakistan. But this time round, if you had to characterize what was it that the PMLN did which was actually pro-business, what would it be outside of these six? Okay, so, so if, you, if you make a distinction between being pro-reform and pro-liberalization, we've, we've, we've reformed quite a bit, but we have not liberalized the economy as much as we could have. I, I'll say this right off the bat. Uh, the problem when we came with an 8.2% budget deficit the first year, you know, in the, in the June that we came, uh, with a depleting... June 2013. June 2013, yeah. with depleting foreign exchange reserves, with an unstable currency... They were depleting because you had payments coming up to the IMF. To the IMF and other, other foreign lenders. And, 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 and so, so our first task was to actually put some things right. Uh, and, 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 and that, we went into an IMF program that we had to because we had to make the payments to IMF. The IMF gave us not a front-loaded but a backward-loaded program. They expected us to pay more to them in the first two years, and then we were able to borrow money from them. But we had to go into the IMF regime. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to borrow from other sources as well. We stabilized the economy. And in that, we were not really did not have the room to liberalize the economy anymore. And we have not been able to do this. I think that going forward, now that we've stabilized the economy, now that our foreign exchange reserves are well, have you stabilized the economy or has lower oil prices helped stabilize the economy? The, if you look at the number of statistics that were moving in the positive direction, they started doing so before even the, the oil prices. But the oil prices yeah. have helped. The oil prices have obviously helped, but at the same time, obviously, commodity prices in cotton, rice, you know, wheat, etc. have also crashed. And so our exports are not doing as well. 
but but nonetheless, I mean, if you wish to not give us credit and and and, and just say that this happened because of the lower, <laughs> yeah. lower oil prices, that's fine. Let but me double down. But, but, let me double down for a second. <laughs> I'm going to double down on that for a second. This is where sort of I I'd like to buck conventional wisdom for a second and just to ask you about revenue. The oil prices going down is fine and they went down pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. What was the need to bring down gasoline prices or petrol prices as we say here at the same rate as global oil prices? Because not every country did that. In fact, yeah. lots of Pakistan's neighbors saw this as a huge opportunity to pad up the one big area of weakness that the modern state in every context has, which is that modern states are finding it really difficult to justify taking money from the people. Here was a glorious opportunity without announcing that you were taking money by reducing the price of petrol. The PTI would have made not sure as that. Fast, <laughs> not as fast as the actual so, price of petrol. So, yeah. so we have the 18th lowest fuel prices in the world. Yes, it's ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. And, and many of these countries who are lower than us are actually oil-producing countries. Sure, exactly. Middle Eastern countries. Okay. And even so, we get a lot of flack from our distinguished political opponents about raising tax rates. So what happened was when the oil price were, let's say, $100 a barrel, and we were charging 17% sales tax, we were getting $17 per every barrel imported. Now the barrel has gone to $30. If you keep the 17% rate, you only get 4 rupees and 80 pesos or something. So in order to make up for revenue, because we had projected those revenues, we had to increase the rate and, and not to charge more than 17 rupees. In fact, we are charging less than 17 rupees. Uh, there's a formula in how petrol prices in Pakistan are set, you know, the Ogra formula that is, uh, I think, reviewed every four weeks or so, or every fortnightly. And, and we've kept that formula except that we've increased tax rates sometimes, and we've passed on those benefits to the consumers, which has helped reduce inflation in Pakistan to, over, to less than 2%, which this in, you know, inflation has actually then, reduced inflation has then stabilized our currency against our foreign uh, competitors, and it has made a difference. See, again, yes, I understand that fuel is one of the easiest ways to raise money for governments, but it's an indirect tax, and it's, it's a tax mostly on lower-income consumers, and, 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 and so why not be able to pass some of this on? And we've actually tried to focus and, and, and get money from elsewhere. And the first two years, we were able to raise our revenues by 33%. This year, seven months of this year, our revenues, FBR revenues are up 18%. So we're okay, doing okay in terms what's, of revenue. What's your, uh, what do you think is Pakistan's sort of bottleneck to growth now? Now, you've got lower prices. You've got... All these things. What I yeah, mean, everything's I, done now. It's stabilized. We have yeah, exchange yeah. rate. India's growing at like eight percent. Yeah, we're Why growing at we? three point seven percent, four point two four percent last year. Come on, so that's the official statistic. I did, okay, but still, I mean, you would imagine that the constraints to growth have been. We should addressed. be nimbler. We're smaller, yeah. so and we have much more so, to grow. So, so we I, should be growing at fifteen. So, Why are we growing at fifteen percent a year? So in the last week, I, I was talking to Nadim Ulak, the former chairman of uh, Planning Commission. We've had him on the podcast, yeah. yeah. And also a PhD from Chicago, by the way. No, he's, he's he actually a, a student of Gary Becker. So he's yeah, real yeah. evil I, empire. I, like he's yeah, yeah. 
I actually was inspired. Uh, Gary Becker is an awesome guy. I mean, he writes so wonderfully. Has destroyed the world. Destroyed the world. So his his wife committed suicide, and he wrote an economics. He wrote an article called "The Economics of Suicide." By the way. Oh my god. <laughs> but, but he's but, also. But, the but so he's like a classy schools. guy. No, no, he's a typical right wing. No, 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 no. He's a very. I mean, very. I think wonderful writer. I mean, very gifted writer. Doctor, I'm happy now. Girl, can't you? So, and 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 but I, the, this one Chicago school economist who inspired me was George Stigler. I used to read a lot about him and wrote wrote a lot of stuff that he used to write. Anyway, uh, and and I've asked this of other people in the last week or so that what is it that we can do to increase growth in Pakistan? and i was wondering if the government was making an obvious mistake are we making some obvious mistakes that we can you know s- solve it turns out that i think a lot of things sit after the 18th amendment uh, in in devolution the provinces will also have to do to change their growth framework i think um, i think that uh, we need to make it easier for in pakistan to do business to start a business and to carry out businesses that's still we are unfortunately not doing well uh, and i'm actually responsible for this and so to my shame and to uh, pakistan's regret i've not been able to do well better than than i have been uh, and and we're trying to improve the business climate but i think that what really hampers growth in pakistan right now is the fact that we are not able to give gas and electricity connections to manufacturing units right away and in fact we've not given a gas connection since 2011 and unless you're allowed to set up manufacturing factories and give jobs to people i don't see how the job how the growth comes so another question on this is then so you've been you are on the board of um, sui now yeah. now now sui southern sui southern, 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 southern gas corporation so we have reserves now of i think 11 to 15 years of known reserves at current rates and right now worldwide it's no longer economical to actually you know like schlumberger all these big firms they've all cut down tens of thousands of people so has the government decided that now we know that you know gas is also there to make electricity it's a big big function of it is there a exploration program which is significantly large because the international companies are not going to do it in pakistan now at these rates um and this is not anything this is not a problem of the government of pakistan but it's a function of world prices so what what what's <coughs> happening for this i mean to use exploration as a strategic element of the pakistan economy okay so uh since uh, the pmln government has come i think they've made like more than 100 discoveries and they've, they've brought in a lot of gas and this is but they're all shallow but, but and, no but yeah. still but still they're not even able to keep Stem up with a third the, yeah. keep, keep up with the depletion yeah of, a, a of third the, of the depletion yeah, yeah. Uh, so so our depletion is very fast and i think by 2025 if no major discoveries are made our our production will go to about 1 and a half 1 billion cubic feet per day compared to about almost 3 and 3.7 billion that we are doing today and and so so the depletion is going really fast so we need to have exploration there was a 2012 policy which was not implemented by then people's party government we've actually implemented that policy if you today discover gas in pakistan it will give you about 4 dollars and 25 cents at the well head which is only about 50 cents more than the lng that we are importing you know mm. uh, from from qatar mm. uh, we need to have exploration in pakistan we need to make it viable for foreign and pakistani companies to explore and give them a reasonably good 
wellhead price, so otherwise they will not deplete. And gas is still cheaper than alternate fuels like fossil, I mean, furnace oil and, 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 and diesel, etc. So we where, need to where do you position? I mean, uh, that point is made, and uh, one one t one accepts that that there needs to be more exploration. But in terms of a hierarchy or, or level of prioritization, where do wind and solar end up on the uh, for this government? Or, or forget this government, but for you, like, why isn't the answer in twenty twenty five that we're gonna we're gonna have ten thousand megawatts coming from the wind corridors? In because we can't afford it. We don't have the money to set, set up ten thousand megawatts. Let me give, give you the economics of this. Uh, so, in order to set up a thousand, if you if you want to get thousand megawatt hours from for wind, you need to set up three thousand megawatts of wind power plants, hmm. and 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 that three thousand megawatts will cost you about sixty billion dollars. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, six billion dollars. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Even I thought. Sorry, wait. Sorry, sorry, no, sorry, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I would have stayed quiet because I don't know the math. No, no, no. Six billion dollars. Okay. Six, six and a half billion dollars to set up three thousand and six and a half billion dollars of investment. So it's two billion per per megawatt. Two per billion thousand. per thousand megawatts. Okay. So, so you get you you invest six billion, let's say. Actually, it's more than six. About about seven, but let's say six billion, and you get one thousand megawatts hour electricity. Okay. okay. In order to get the same amount of electricity from coal, you have to invest a billion dollars. Of course, you have to continue buying coal, but you have to invest a billion dollars. To gas, maybe seven, eight hundred million dollars. So we don't really have the capital equipment, capital investment ready right now to shift to coal. But and, have and, we, and done, have we done net present value studies and have we amortized yeah, 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 these, yeah, yeah, these financial yeah, 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 streams? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it seems to me yeah, 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 yeah. that this simple math is actually quite dangerous, right? Like Because no, 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 somebody no. will say, let's just go with coal because it's, well, okay, we can go with coal, but the carbon footprint that we're putting in place today and the long-term liabilities to Pakistan from, from COP21 and from the long, lo longer discourse on uh, emissions. But let me give you the levelized tariffs right now. And first of all, nowhere in the world is wind or solar really base load. You need to have base load. And number two, our carbon footprint is very, very small. We have no grid-connected carbon, I mean, coal-fired coal, coal plants. Number three, coal right now will cost you about eight cents per kilowatt hour. Gas, LNG-based gas will cost you about seven and a half cents per kilowatt hour. As of right now, there are wind plants being set and sent, which will cost us, you and me and FASI, 13.52 cents per kilowatt hour over the life of the plant for the next 20 years levelized. And, and the new policy now gives you a 10.2 cents. Solar is costing you 14 and a half okay, cents. Okay, so is this built into our response to COP21? Because of course, you know the fiasco with, with, with what we did in Paris at the Climate Change Summit. No, I don't. And I mean, we weren't prepared for it. Because we chilled. Yeah, we, we chilled. Yeah. I mean, it's a one-pager. I've seen it. The Prime Minister now knows about it, and he's appoint he's asked somebody to work on it, and now there's this forestation thing that's come out of that, that work. But I have a longer-term worry, which is that the people that are really informed about our energy needs don't seem to be particularly concerned about the kind of green economy discourse that whether we like it or not, like we don't have to listen to it because of the NGOs, but the international community and multilateral institutions all over the world are now very, very focused on climate change and the impact of how we create yes, electricity and, 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 and produce electricity. And, and we're not ignoring the green economy. We, I mean, even as we speak, you know, we are going to, we, by the end of next year, we will have more than a thousand megawatts of solar power and a thousand megawatts of wind power available in Pakistan. Okay? That's starting from zero solar and, and 50 wind 
that we, when we came in, we will have produced 2,000 megawatts of alternate energy. I think that's remarkable, okay? That's pretty good. But, but at the same time, there is debilitating energy shortages in Pakistan, and for baseload energy, you need some LNG-based power. 3,600 megawatts is coming, the government's own money, 2,400 from federal government and 12 from Punjab. Then we're also having some coal power plants, and we have the fifth largest coal deposit in the world. We produce no electricity from coal. I think we can do this and use coal, clean coal technology and things like that. How, how much of the plan is, is going to be addressed by some of the recent <coughs> activity projects? Gaza 1000, DAPI, the Iran-Pakistan pipeline, a significant number of megawatts one would expect is going to be coming in from, from these places or not. TAPI is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and if for meeting our energy needs, really, we have to do some sort of pipelines from Iran or, or Turkmenistan. And, and, and the, the, we are natural markets for them. And it, pipeline gas, long term, should be cheaper than LNG. It's just that we got a very good deal from Qatar. But hopefully, we'll renegotiate with Iran and all that, and we'll get a better deal. But pipeline gas, if you can get from Turkmenistan and Iran, we should do this. And, 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 and we will not be able to meet our energy requirements unless we get this. So TAPI is very, very important. In terms of um, uh, CASA 1000, uh, that's another 1,000 megawatts of power coming into Pakistan through Afghanistan. Um, I think it would be very welcome. Uh, but let's see. Just a question on this, on Qatar especially. One of the things that I saw which I found extremely interesting is that Qatar, the deal, for the longest time seemed to be there's a lot of opacity around this. Why is the PMLN so poor at uh, you know, presenting decisions under consideration? Like now I've seen the deal, I've seen, you know, I've heard of a number of people speak of it, and it makes sense, but I've always wondered that, you know, like e even in CPEC or in any other, when something is still under consideration with the PMLN, it seems that, you know, people can hijack the narrative easily, put a lot of doubts around it, and I don't see the spinning of it, or at least the presenting of it, as being reasonable or well done. I, I, think, I think I I would concede that we, we, we did not... Uh, put out our narrative as well as we could have or we should have in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, the LNG deal, partially because we... Same with Nandipur, same with the Jinnah solar farm, <laughs> no, no, same, I mean, same I, with Neelam Jailam. I mean, but, but There's I'm, a consistency there. I'm, I'm I mean, let me just, the LNG, I mean, you know, partially because we were hampered because Qatar had said that, you know, do not disclose prices while we're negotiating, and we couldn't. And the other thing is, and, and whether it's Nandipur, whether it's, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, LNG deal, is just the, the proclivity of people to just be, to want to believe that there is some conspiracy, conspiracy going on, that there is some corruption going on, and, and yet, you know, it turns out that there is no corruption in Nandipur, there is no corruption in the LNG deal. But it's just that, you know, I think that there should be also the media and the people should also give us the benefit of doubt. That we've been here three years, I mean, the PMLN government has been, you know... I mean, honestly, I think they... The it's not their thing, job The to last do. thing we want in a democracy, Mr. <laughs> yes. Doc Saab, really, the last thing we want in a, in a democracy is start giving... Asking the media to like give you... Trust yeah. to, to give... To give, I mean, I'm not sort of active media, but I would really be very worried about a democracy in which the media starts giving a free pass to the government because 
free pass nobody's asking for but benefit of doubt while we're saying <laughs> that we're negotiating i mean why would you believe the the, the wildest uh, you because know, we have a long history of yeah of but conspiracy. but we are different uh -huh. i mean eight years okay the pmln government has been in governance has been in government for the last eight years in punjab there's not one one credible story of corruption there not one we've been in power in the federal government for three years I remember that during the previous government, every week there would be a new story. There is not even a single story, credible story here in the last three years. I think at some point you have to say, okay, you know, while these guys are trying to do this, let's give them... No, but if you look at what the government said recently, you know, with how panicked it appeared to be that NAB is sniffing around in the Punjab, I mean, I even saw that as sort of a bit poor in communications terms. I, I don't think that they were talking about Punjab, but I think the Prime Minister was talking about the fact that uh, you know, a lot of government officials and, 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 and company officials are very uh, disturbed by the ongoing inquiries. And, 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 and you know, uh, and I think that's that's what he was reflecting in his talk in Babalpur. No, I just want to add one one more quick question. If that's okay, go ahead. If you want to make a point, you go ahead. All right. Yeah. So, so the thing is, like, we've established you're libertarian, and these days people are saying that the Sharif brothers are liberals. Is there any truth to that? All this stuff that's happening recently, what is driving okay, this? Libertarian liberals are nothing. I know that, I know that. I'm just, I'm just using a phonetic similarity to make a point here. Except for... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Uh, you have to really think on this one, I think. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, you had a great quote in the big uh, I, Tim Craig piece yes. in the Washington Post, I actually, which declares I, I, I actually, a new I, dawn I, I, in Pakistan. I, I, yeah. I, I sort of wrote the first draft of the speech that the Prime Minister read to the investment conference, where he was talking about you know, a liberal economy and, and progressive you know, economy. And we, I, we talked about, the Prime Minister talked about uh, you know, education being important for children, and he made the point of not just boys, but also girls. Uh, and in, 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 in the Tim Craig piece, I, I talked about the fact that Prime Minister himself is a very religious man, but he's perfectly okay to be to have people around him who are not so particularly religious, that he's not willing to impose his own uh, religious views or will on other people. And, uh, you know, you can label it the way you want. Uh, but here's a man who is himself very religious uh, and who understands that this is an Islamic society, uh, but who also thinks that you know girls and, and, and young women should be able to uh, go to school and that, 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 that they need to be protected from domestic violence and from uh, non-domestic violence. So I think, I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation and I think we got into a lot more depth, especially on energy issues, than I imagined that we would. I mean, just as we sort of begin to think about wrapping this up, although I really, neither Fussy nor I want to. Uh, I have to say I've enjoyed this immensely. No, no, so yeah. have I. Yeah. But I guess the, the question that bothers me, and I think it bothers Fussy equally, although he'll not admit to it as much. Um, how is it, like how many other people like you in the cabinet? Like when you're sitting in a cabinet meeting, who, who challenges you? Do you talk like this in cabinet meetings? Or do you have a different, like, is there a different version of Dr. Mifta Ismail in those meetings? I, I, I mean, we have <clears throat> ACC very often, the right. Economic Coordination Committee of the cabinet. And, uh, and sometimes uh, I'm also on the member of the uh, cabinet committee on privatization. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, obviously we've talked about theoretical stuff here, but I, I mean, I talk the way I talk. 
I mean, and I express my views. So how many people can keep up? I think I think that I mean you, know, you can be honest. No, we I, won't no, take I, any names. I, no, no, I think that I think that for some reason Muslim League is not being given proper credit for how intelligent a cabinet we have. For how, <laughs> uh, uh, I for love this dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have to say this. <laughs> <laughs> that that you know we have you know people two people from LSC we have. PhDs, we have people, I mean, three people in the cabinet from University of Pennsylvania, Asan Iqbal Saab, MBA from Wharton, myself, a PhD from Wharton, and Balihu Rahman, who's an engineer from Penn. Khurram Dastagir, you know, uh, went to, I think, Caltech, which is a very difficult school to get in and get out. Well, but Khurram Dastagir is next level as well. I mean, it's, he's, he's it's, into it's Bach just, and, like, poetry it's, it's, and, like, it's an incredibly level. smart man. Yeah. Uh, so any number of... Uh, any but are these the voices that are driving public policy in Pakistan today? I, there's a genuine... Look, I'm only trying to articulate what I think people would want to, would want to ask I think, you, right? I, think I mean, have... is it, isn't it true that, like, sort of the Yadi and Dosti of, like, let's say the Khaja Asifs uh, and uh, Pradesh Rashid... Who went to LSD? Khaja Asif, by the way. I, I love Khaja Asif. That's not really the point. The point is, isn't it... The, no, actually, I won't even frame it like that. Let, let me be as as generous as I can be in how I frame this question. So let me frame it like this. There's an impression out there, Dr. Miftah Ismail, that the big-time decisions and mood of the cabinet and the prime minister is defined by intimacy at a personal level with the prime minister and the ability of people to almost at an emotional level appeal to the prime minister as opposed to investing in the kind of conversation we've had today. And that even if you really did a good job of pitching it, very few people would believe that when policy issues are being debated that you guys actually get into the kind of depth that we got into in this conversation. Well, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i one of those people who actually has a good relationship with the prime minister. So, I mean, I, I don't see the problem perhaps that you know maybe others do, but there's the, here's the point. You must never look at the inputs. I may be very well credentialed, but I may just not be working hard enough, or I, you know, I may not be serious about this. So what you want to do is only look at the output. Never look at the inputs of. I mean, no, never. Even when you when you when you're running your NGO and people say I work very hard, doesn't really matter whether you work really hard or not. What is the output you produce? So it doesn't really matter whether Miftah Smile is being heard of, or or Marvi Memon is being heard, or Mohammad Zubair is being heard, or Essen Iqbal is being heard. What you want to look is what is the outcome of PMLN government? Is the PMLN government, uh, has the PMLN government improved the economy in Pakistan? Yes, it has. Has the PMLN government on the right track to set up, you know, power generation in Pakistan and, and solve this problem by 2017? And yes, it is. And if not, we will lose the elections. It, as, as well, we should. I mean, if we have not been improved, has the PMLN government uh, improve the law and order situation in Pakistan? Yes, it has. So there were three major problems that Nawaz Sharif had on his plate when he came to power. Insurgency and law and order, energy and the economy. And he's worked on all three and I think done a very good job with this three. And then 2018 we will know. If, 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 if people of Pakistan think that, that Nawaz Sharif has not done a good job, then I think you know, they have other choices. I think at the macro level, that's a perfectly acceptable sort of explanation. But knowing, I guess for, for someone like me, and Perhaps Fussy will have a different take on this, but for someone like me, knowing... I mean, the reason I was asking the question about the cabinet was because I did want you to get into a, an ex exploration of all the other competent and really intelligent people in the cabinet. 
And what that does is gives me a chance to say, well, with all those smart people, why aren't we doing better? I, it's great that we've, we've stabilized the currency, that we've improved the amount of megawatts that, that are being produced. Uh, it's great that there's been an improvement in the law and order situation. But we as a society and an economy and a polity have some pretty serious challenges that remain. And, and those challenges are bigger than what the ground that's been covered thus far. There's some really fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves after Mumtaz Qadri's funeral about the quality of discourse in our society and the way that we speak to each other in this society. There's some pretty serious questions we have to ask about an economy that only grows at 4.2% instead of 10%. You know, and, and, and you have raised those questions, and I think you and your colleagues in the cabinet and the prime minister, I'm sure, are perfectly capable of having that discussion and, and finding the answers and delivering it. If people give you the benefit of the doubt, my fear is that we'll be stuck with 4.2%, that we'll be stuck with everything that we have today. How are we going to get better unless, unless the really, really smart people in the government, like yourself, are ones that are setting up challenges for your colleagues rather than ones that are celebrating what's been achieved thus far? No, but Okay, so when I say, first of all, when I talk about the benefit of doubt, I don't really mean a free pass at all. And, and, and I was only referring to the fact that, you know, I, I went to a TV station and there I saw a file which said, LNG scam. And I said, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, I, and I protested, I said, that, you know, I will absolutely make sure that Shahid Abbasi will come and do a one-on-one -on -one interview with you, but my, my requirement would be that first you have a cup of coffee with me at Kosar and sit with me for an hour and let me explain to you, you know. People who don't understand the difference between the slope of brand that, you know, we, or, or dollar terms, and, you know, they've criticized us and, you know, criticized us at, in tremendous, you know, in, in tremendous different ways. Uh, so, it, you know, so I, I, my idea was not to prejudge us. Now, in terms of challenging each other and not celebrating, yes, of course, we want to celebrate, you know, our colleagues' achievements. But at the same time, we do try to challenge each other and try to improve each other. Uh, you know, even now I've actually looked at my watch twice because I have to go and make a presentation, you know, for a Sagdar that I need to go and, you know, give it to him tomorrow about, you know, uh, some policy. Uh, so, you know, so I think that we work well with the team in challenging each other as well as celebrating each other. Um, anyhow, I don't know, you have to leave, but I have just one last question. Sure, sure. And that is, again, so when you're trying to explain to us, you know, the achievements that have happened and there have been uh, a number of them, but these achievements in at least the political sphere have met with very strong and quite successful objections from the PTI in terms of how they narrate it. Even if they have on occasion, uh, they've done a better job of doing a counter-narrative than actually delivery. But I've often wondered is that if you look at sort of uh, their uh, worldview and how they've presented it, the level of the kind of people that you do have and some of whom you mentioned and the thinking that goes behind a lot of things. So when you're looking at 2018, do you think you'll have consolidated an explanation of what has actually been achieved in a way that will resonate more than it is now? I think, I think when, when people go in the ballot box, you know, there's this thing about money talks and, you know, BS walks. And I think that, you know, PTI is very good at coming up with a narrative. They have really not delivered, you know, as much, you know, as they used to talk about delivering. But, but we'll see. Uh, I actually honestly think that what we've achieved so far and what we are going to achieve in the next two years, I think will put us in good stead in, in 2018 when we go into the ballot box, when we go to the polls. And I think that 
again, the people of Pakistan would look at the outputs, and PTI has this narrative about having a you know very educated middle class supporters and all that stuff, and fine, you know maybe you know whatever. But I think that mm -hmm. we will. We, I'm I'm more than happy to match our record against that of any other party in Pakistan. Okay, on all that right. sort of positive note. Yes, uh, I'm so grateful that you took the time uh, to spend with us and have this really open and I thought really informative conversation. I hope you'll do it again sometime soon and we can have a more relaxed conversation that's more focused on Mifta Ismail. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming. Thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure and a uh, very, uh, very uh, great learning experience. We'll be going now again once with the great baseline. We have uh, Shadab Zaidi signing up. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. Hope to speak to you again very soon. Khudafiz.